morning. Um, we're reading Daniel chapter 7 this morning. Daniel chapter 7. And it will be on the screen, I think. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me 
and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth, but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot what was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit, and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Morning, my name's Rhys Laverty, I'm one of the members here. Let's pray briefly before we take another look at that passage. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I promise you one thing from this passage this morning. Joy. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he said about this passage, Daniel 7, Daniel always ends all his visions and dreams, however terrible, with joy. There's a lot to get your head around in this passage, right? Uh, Lots of it, like Luther said, terrible. You might be a bit baffled and overwhelmed after that reading, and you don't really want to take an extended look at this. So I'll promise you one thing, if you'll stick with me, okay? Joy. Before we get into this passage, let's think about how we approach such a strange passage. Why does the Bible contain passages like this? 
Daniel is one of the Old Testament prophets, and prophecy, we often think, means predicting the future. Uh, Daniel 7 certainly does predict things that are in Daniel's future, but why does God give these predictions in such a strange way? He's perfectly capable of giving predictions in plain Hebrew elsewhere. He says to Abraham, I'll surely return to you this time next year. Your wife Sarah will have a son. Very simple. Why don't we have something similar here? Well, prophecy isn't simply about predicting the future. It's about reshaping the way that we see the present. It's not so much about getting new information, but about forming a new imagination. Now, this kind of prophecy we call apocalyptic literature. Sounds scary. Apocalypse, that word, it doesn't mean the end of the world. It's a Greek word that means revelation. So apocalyptic literature, like this, it pulls back the curtain of life and reveals what is really going on in the world. And that seems counterintuitive, because what we want to do right now is peel back the curtain on Daniel 7 and work out what's really going on. But Daniel 7 is what you see when the curtain of life is pulled back. So we can't just come to this passage asking, what's this predicting? What events is it about? Though that is something we can and should ask. Daniel asks it during the vision. But often with the Bible, we treat the specific words and the images uh, as a bit of a husk, the outer shell of a nut to, to crack and discard so that we can get to the lesson that is hidden inside. But that's not how the Bible works. The specific words, the specific images that Scripture uses, confusing as they can be, the warp and woof of the passage, the weirdness of it, that's meant to get inside our minds and our hearts to change us. We need an apocalyptic imagination, an imagination that looks at the world and can peel back what's happening and see the reality in the terms of Daniel 7. Now, I'll give you a non-biblical example of how your imagination can get shaped by an image or by some words. One of my favorite sitcoms is The Thick of It. It's a political comedy. And there's a line in that where a character, she describes a group of panicked politicians as bobbing about like emperor penguins trying to swap over an egg. It's a brilliant line. And the last couple of weeks, I haven't been able to look at a group of panicked politicians trying to make a decision without seeing emperor penguins bobbing about trying to swap over an egg. That line has just reshaped my imagination. I can't look at one thing without seeing another thing. That's what an apocalyptic imagination should be like. We look at one thing in the world and we see another, like what we've seen in Daniel 7. Now, in spite of the weird imagery, we actually do get told in the passage quite clearly what this is about. Look at verse 17. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth, but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. So this vision is really about two things. The four great beasts, who are four kingdoms, and the holy people of the Most High, God's people, It's a vision of monsters on one side and of men on the other. The chapter is split into this initial vision and that explanation in verse 17, 18. And then there's a closer look at that fourth beast and the little horn and another explanation after that. So we're not going to work through it start to finish. We're going to look at the four beasts and the little horn and how they appear. And then we're going to look at the holy people and how they appear. But again, not just to understand 
how this applies to events that happened centuries ago, but to have our imaginations reshaped now. And all of that, like I promised, in the pursuit of joy. So the four beasts. The angel explains they represent four kingdoms. Remember chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar dreamt of a great statue. That represented four kingdoms. The same four as here. They all come out of the great sea. In the Bible, the sea symbolizes chaos and judgment and the godless Gentile nations outside Israel. So these beasts, these kingdoms, they're agents of chaos. They're under God's judgment. Pagans who don't worship the real gods. So they're bad news, it seems, but they're not all bad. Okay, they make them out of the sea, but the sea is churned up by the wind of heaven. The wind is always a symbol of God's spirit in the Bible. So they're, they're driven by God's spirit. They surround God's throne, which is very similar to the vision that the prophet Ezekiel has, also in the exile, of God's throne. He sees four creatures around it. They're the cherubim, God's angel servants. Now these beasts, they're not the cherubim, they're kingdoms, but they're like the cherubim. They're like dogs at the heel of God's throne. The bear beast, verse 5, it follows an instruction, doesn't it? Those first three beasts, though they're, they're unclean in the Old Testament law, they're pretty positive animals. Lions, they're noble. Bears are the protective mother she-bears. Leopards are fast and strong. So these beasts, certainly the first three, they're a mixed bag. And we can pause here and get our imagination shaped a little bit. So they represent earthly kingdoms, right, these beasts? And we live in what seems like a very unstable and polarized time among earthly kingdoms. At home and abroad, it's only intensified in the months of lockdown. And we can all be tempted to either paint the powers that be as totally evil and corrupt, or to treat them as our sinless saviors. But when we look at the governments of the world, we should see them like these beasts, a thoroughly mixed bag. Our worldly powers can all at once be noble creatures and beasts from the sea. They can be agents of chaos and servants at God's throne. They can be wicked and humane all in the same week. You might be thinking, politics, world affairs, that's not really your thing. It's not something that interests you much and that this sermon's not for you. If God gives these things attention in his words, we have to as well. It doesn't mean you have to be up to date on the, the latest gossip in Westminster, but it does mean you should be aware of the things that God warns us about. To have no interest in what the kingdoms of the world are up to, it's like hiking into the savannah and not knowing anything about lions and rhinos. We live in a world of beasts, and you might not be interested in them, but as we've seen in Daniel, the beasts are interested in you. And we'll only be easy prey if we're not wise to that fact. So who are these three beasts? Let's think about who they specifically were in Daniel's day. The lion-like beast, majority opinion is that this is a picture of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. The bear represents Medo-Persia, which is Darius' kingdom. The leopard represents the Greeks, who are in Daniel's future. And the fourth beast represents Rome and all the kingdoms who come after Rome, really. Now, why, why is that the case? Let's look. Verse 4, the lion beast is stood on two feet like a human, given the mind of a human. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar was made like a beast, but given the mind of human again. Chapter 4 said his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle during that time. Verse 4 here, the lion's eagle wings are torn off when he's given that mind back. Babylon, the bear-like beast, follows the lion, just like 
Medo-Persia followed Babylon. It's raised up on one side. That might represent how the Medes, one group in the empire, were always raised up over the Persians. Or it could represent how God raised up his people in Persia, didn't he? Uh, Daniel, Esther, Nehemiah were raised up. The bear's eating three ribs, gets told to go and eat its fill of flesh. That could mean Persia's violence, but ribs in the Bible, they're associated with Eve, who's Adam's bride. Israel is the Lord's bride. So it could be a symbol of Israel being taken in, incorporated into Persia, like Daniel, Esther, Nehemiah, taken into the government. The leopard beast, after that, has four wings and four heads. Greece followed Persia in the ancient world. And thanks to Alexander the Great, it spread leopard-like swiftly uh, across Europe and the Middle East. But then equally quickly, it was split into four when Alexander died. And the fourth beast is unlike the others. It's unlike any animal. Terrifying, frightening, powerful. We take this to be Rome, history's greatest empire. It's got ten horns, as in animal horns, like an ox. Uh, A symbol in the Bible of power and of being exalted. Ten is a number that represents strength and power as well. It sprouts a little horn. We'll think about the little horn in a bit. And because no other beast comes after the fourth one, we kind of take it to represent all the kingdoms that follow Rome as well, the ones we live among today. The Ancient of Days and the Son of Man arrive. We'll look at them later, but they spell the end of these beasts. So, whistle-stop tour of the ancient world there. What use is all of that to us now? Look at verse 1. The vision takes place in the first year of Belshazzar. So that's before the events of chapters 5 and 6. So Daniel lived under the lion, Babylon, knowing that the bear would come and take it over. That great upheaval did not take Daniel by surprise. Nor would he have been surprised by the different way that those beasts could behave. They'll do beastly things. They're wild animals. But sometimes God might cause a beast, a pagan kingdom, to see sense and do good, give it the mind of a human. Sometimes he might command the bear to incorporate people into its government or to devour and persecute them. He might give dominion to a new unexpected kingdom that spreads quickly like a leopard in a revolution or an upheaval or an unexpected referendum or election. But then he might swiftly divide that power into four overnight. See, these things should shape how we look at a world in turmoil. Christians shouldn't be surprised by the evil all the good, all the unexpected in world affairs. We live in such a polarized time. People think that politicians or movements are either unspeakably evil or unquestionably righteous. We think that sudden uh, upheavals and protests are going to usher in a new utopia. Or we think that our Christians will never suffer uh, persecution here. Or we think, oh, there's no hope. Christians shouldn't be involved in public life at all. Those are all foolish extremes. And if we see the beasts in the world, if we have that apocalyptic imagination, we should avoid all those ways of thinking because we know how the beasts behave. We know how God can cause the beasts to behave. Daniel 7 should stop us being taken by surprise. What about that fourth beast and the little horn? They get special attention. Verse 19, Daniel asks about the fourth beast and the horns. Verse 21, a bit more is added to the vision. This horn is boastful. Verse 21, it says, As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came. 
Verse 23, the angel explains about the horn and the fourth beast. It's a fourth kingdom, verse 23, that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue and try to change. Uh, he will subdue three kings. Sorry, he will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. Like I said, we take that to be Rome, different to all other kingdoms in lots of ways. It was bigger, harder, faster, stronger. It was governed differently. It worshipped differently. Those ten horns don't really symbolise ten individuals, but again, it's great power. And then there's this little horn who boasts, who wages war on God's people. Now, there have been a lot of candidates for who the little horn is over the years. Plenty think it was uh, Julius Caesar or all the Roman emperors. Uh, the Pope has always been a front-runner for the job. Um, others think it's some specific antichrist who's going to come someday in the future. Napoleon, Adolf Hitler, Barack Obama, or indeed any president who Republican Christians don't like, have all been candidates I think the, the view that this is some specific antichrist who we're still waiting for is particularly hard to sustain. It would be very odd for Daniel to leap from Rome so far into the future for someone who hasn't even appeared yet. I like the suggestion that the little horn is Herod the Great, who ruled when Jesus was born, along with other faithless Jews who opposed Jesus. Herod, he came to power by violence. He tore up other horns. He claimed to be a Jew, but Herod, he was really an Edomite. He was descended from Esau, so he wasn't one of God's holy people. The fourth beast, Rome, has no face, but the horn does have a face. Herod was kind of the puppet king, the face of Rome to Israel. Uh, he tried to change the set times and laws, I think, by trying to stop the coming of the Messiah. I think that fits quite well. It's a minority opinion. I wouldn't quite bet my house on it. But like the rest of the chapter... The little horn is here to shape our imagination now, not just to make us think about Herod 2,000 years ago. Horns, like I've said, are an image of power and being exalted in the Bible. And this horn does have power. Verse 22, he wages war against the holy people and defeats them. 25, the holy people are in his hands. We live in a world of beasts. And some of them have powerful horns. There are truly rulers who are set against Christians. We can see it in the persecuted church that gets pierced on the horns of Boko Haram in Nigeria or uh, the government in North Korea. And though it's not the same, I wouldn't pretend it's the same, there is persecution here. And persecution of Christians in this country has changed a lot in the last 10 years. It's not about Richard Dawkins anymore. It's not about nurses being told off for offering to pray with their patients. It's not about being mocked for not drinking or not having sex before you're married anymore. That being the face of persecution, those days are gone. If you think Richard Dawkins is the face of opposition to Christians anymore, you're 12 years too late. Even the atheists don't like Richard Dawkins anymore. It's now at the stage where if you don't explicitly affirm our culture's idols, like we've seen in Daniel probably under the, the friendly-sounding guise of a, of a diversity and inclusion statement at work, you will get the sack. Or friends will cut you off, branding you as intolerant as a racist. That has happened to me in the last year. Particular danger for those of us who work in the public sector or in schools or for big corporations. If you're self-employed or you work with your hands, you're a bit safer these days. 
But what do we do when the little horns wage war and defeat us? Those of us who are in the highest paid jobs, uh, who probably make up the highest percentage of church giving, start getting the sack because we won't sign on the dotted line. We live in a world of little horns who have power. But remember, they're little horns. That's a mocking image. It's a joke. It's a political cartoon. The horns seem powerful and exalted, but they're tiny in God's eyes. They think they're like the genie in Aladdin. They think they have phenomenal cosmic power, but they have an itty-bitty living space. That's how they see themselves, but really they are puny. What's their fate? Verse 22. The Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people. Verse 26. The court will sit and the little horn's power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. See, though they do pose a real threat, they do have power, the little horns are eventually destroyed. They're revealed to just be that, little horns. And that's where we turn to those who are judged more favorably, the holy people of the Most High. Now, as Daniel stands, terrified at the start of the vision, he sees something happening alongside the beasts. Look at verse 9. As I looked at the beasts. Not after, but alongside. So whilst all of this is happening, whilst the beasts are raging, God sits in the highest place. The Ancient of Days is on his throne as this is happening. Why is God called the Ancient of Days here? He's not called it anywhere else in the Bible. The beasts disappear swiftly, one after the other. Four come and go in the blink of an eye. But God is still seated. It's an incredible scene, God's throne. It recalls intentionally how God appeared to Moses at Sinai in pure white and fire, showing that this isn't just any God. It's not the God of the nations. It's the God of Israel. His throne, it has wheels, meaning it can move anywhere across the earth. No one's outside of his rule. He's attended by countless angels, and they judge the earth together. That terrifying phrase, books were opened. Presumably for the riot act to be read to the beasts. And having seen the throne, Daniel sees the demise of the beasts. The boastful horn is destroyed. The fourth beast is thrown into the fire. The other beasts have their authority stripped. God is the one in control. And then we encounter the Son of Man, verse 13. We began the passage with waters of chaos and the dry land filled with beasts. Sound familiar? That's the world in Genesis 1, just after God's made it. Who does God send to rule over it? Adam, the man. Who steps onto the scene in Daniel 7? The son of man, to rule over the beasts. He's like the son of man, but he's also like God. He comes to the Ancient of Days, but he comes on the clouds. Only God rides on the clouds, and he receives worship, we're told. This son of man is man and God. But he also pulls together all of the great promises that God had made to Israel, promises that seemed broken in the exile, in Daniel's day. He is every national hero at once, the Son of Man. He's like Adam, ruling the beasts. He's like Noah, who was given dominion after the flood. He's like Abraham. We're told he brings blessing to all nations and peoples of every language, like Abraham would. He's like Moses, led into the presence of God. He's like David with a kingdom that will last forever. Now most of us know that 
Jesus called himself the Son of Man. And this is him. This is a vision of Jesus Christ, both God and man, pulling together all the great promises of God that looked like they'd been broken in the exile. The one whose kingdom is going to destroy all others. Daniel has a vision here of the day that during the Roman Empire, after the time of the first two beasts, uh, the time of the third beast, and the half a time of the fourth beast, that's what I think that means, in the days of the Roman Empire, when Jesus Christ ascended to heaven after his resurrection. Notice he goes, he's going into heaven here on the clouds, not coming out of heaven on the clouds. This is Jesus ascended. This is what Jesus is doing right now. Right now as we gather on a Sunday morning. This is what keeps him busy. When he'd risen and ascended, God declared for all to see that Jesus Christ is king. But notice how the angel interprets the Son of Man. Verse 18. Daniel asks him, what does it mean? This is how he interprets it. Verse 18. The holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Verse 22, the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people. Verse 27, then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people. See, the angel doesn't look at the Son of Man and see a lone individual. He sees a people, the holy people, the faithful remnant in Israel, the church, you and me here this morning if we're Christians. The Son of Man is obviously Jesus Christ. But because you and I are one with Jesus Christ, the Son of Man is also us. He represents the holy people. Verse 9, what gets put in place? Thrones, plural. Not just one throne for God, thrones for all of his people to sit in. Because if you trust in Jesus Christ, the King, the Son of Man, you reign with him, even when the beasts are here. And you will reign with him forever when the beasts are gone. And suffering and persecution are real. But this is more real. This is what an apocalyptic imagination has to peel back and see. We've, we're going to have to cling on to this, have this kind of imagination in the days ahead. Who knows what we will live through as Christians in the, in the future? How would you cope if the day came where you refused to wear the rainbow lanyard and you got the sack? Parents of young children, you know, if respectable careers are closed off to your kids because there's no way of them getting through university or into big companies without signing up to things they don't believe in. How will you manage? How will you prepare them for a world that is far more hostile than it was when you grew up in it? You're going to need an apocalyptic imagination. You're going to need to peel back what you see for a glimpse of reality to see that the Ancient of Days is on his throne and that you're seated with him reigning with the Son of Man. And the day's coming when the beasts will be thrown into the fire and we will know the reality of verse 18. The holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. I promised you, along with Martin Luther, that I'd end with joy. An apocalyptic imagination should lead to joy. We've got to peel back the curtain and see what is true. We mustn't be naive about the world or taken by surprise. Daniel is terrified. He's left troubled even at the end of the vision. The world is full of beasts. They can be good and faithful servants of God. But they are beasts and sometimes they even have little horns. But as we see the beasts, like Daniel, alongside them we must see the Ancient of Days. And we must see the Son of Man, our risen and ascended 
Lord Jesus. We reign with him now, and the day comes when he'll come back to judge the living and the dead, and he'll destroy the beasts, and his kingdom will fill the whole earth, and we, the holy people of the Most High, will reign with him forever. And that is joy. I started with one reformer. I'm going to finish with a prayer uh, written by John Calvin, another reformer, based on this passage. You bow your heads with me. Let's pray this together. As we leave here this morning, go out into a world of beasts in the week ahead, but with the knowledge of the ancient of days and the Son of Man behind it all. Let's pray. Grant, Almighty God, whatever revolutions happen daily in the world, that we may always be intent on the sight of your glory manifested to us in your Son. May the splendor of your majesty illuminate our hearts and may we pass beyond the visible heavens of the sun, the moon and the stars and behold behind it your blessed kingdom which you reveal to us in the light of your gospel. May we walk through the midst of the darkness and afflictions of the world content with the light by which you invite us to that hope of eternal inheritance which you've promised us and acquired for us by the blood of your only begotten son. Amen.